Now, this past week, I read a story um, that told about a long-running argument between two good friends. They weren't mean or angry, and they went back and forth and laughed a lot in the process. And one guy, his core life approach was this, and and he made this statement, life is performance-based. He said, life is performance-based. And on one level, I agree with him, right? Life as this world measures is performance-based. We live in an achievement-oriented society. You prove your worth by what you do, what you possess, or what you earn. You judge a student by their report card, their performance, right? And for some of you, that was probably a painful moment. You judge a salesperson by the amount of sales that they have. You, you judge a factory line worker by, by their production, by their performance. You judge your favorite player on your favorite team by how much they help the team win. Right? If they throw an interception, then you're mad at them, ready to trade them off to another team. But if they throw a touchdown pass, then you love them. Society judges people based on what they have, what they do, and what they achieve. Life is built around achieving something in order to receive something else. You receive money, attention, fame, acceptance, or friends, all based on what you do. And so you learn from a very early age that performance is what matters. You strive to do and to produce so that you can please others so that you can get stuff. We live in a performance-oriented society where if you don't perform, you don't measure up. Sadly, many people make this, have this same thought process when it comes to their relationship with God. If I do enough good things, God will be happy with me. If I give enough money, if I work on enough projects, or if I say the right things, my life will be pleasing to God. People miss out on a relationship with God because of their performance-based approach. They say things like, I've got to get my life back together, and then I'll be ready to try God. Or I couldn't be a Christian. I've done so many wrong things. And you assume that God is in heaven looking down with a gold star. Right? Do you guys remember gold stars? Some of you guys are too too young to remember that. But gold stars were these little full thingies that they used to put on a paper if you did well. It was before like the really awesome stickers that say, you're great, fantastic job, all the other things that my wife buys that I have no clue what they mean. Um, But the gold stars, we even used them in church, right? You got gold stars if you brought your Bible, if you brought your friend, if you could say the memory verse. And it was all about these gold stars. Right, I read recently that some elementary teachers even draw a smiley face or a frowny face on a kid's hand based on how they acted that day. Right, then mom or dad checks their hand to see what kind of day they had. How cruel is that? Right, it's like sending a soldier on, on their own death sentence, right? Now, I know here in Mejia they don't do that. They just use colors. And they put it inside a folder. So kind of the same thing. But here's what I know is that gold stars were very motivating. Right? If you did really well on an assignment, then you got a gold star at the top of your paper. You took that paper home. You showed your mom and enjoyed her praises. The problem is that many people who don't have a relationship with God 
have a concept of God sitting in heaven, watching and passing out gold stars. Way to go. You helped an old lady cross the street. Here's a gold star for your chart. All right. You sponsored a hungry kid. For that, you get two gold stars. You were generous and you paid for the person in in the drive-thru behind you. Man, that's worth three gold stars. And so people believe if I get enough of these gold stars and God will accept me and allow me into heaven when I die. Is that an accurate picture? Is life really performance-based? Can I tell you, life without God is absolutely performance-based. However, life with God is not performance-based. It is grace-based. If you've been trying to achieve or perform to prove your worth, or if you wonder if you're good enough for God to accept and approve, this story and this message is for you. The story's found in 2 Samuel. David and Saul were enemies. Saul was the king, but David was appointed by God to be the next king because Saul disobeyed God. Saul wasn't happy, and he tried to kill David. Now, their battles filled chapters of the Bible. But incredibly, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, were best friends. And so David and Jonathan made this covenant, a series of promises with each other. The promises extended not just to each other, but to their descendants and to future generations to come. So today we pick up the story after Jonathan's death. And David remembered his promise and set out in search of someone related to Jonathan so that he could fulfill his covenant. He found Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. David's treatment of Mephibosheth is one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of God's grace towards us. This story is a type of God's relationship to us. Now, a type is a symbol or picture in the Old Testament, which points to something in the New Testament or in the future. Now, looking at this story, I want to give you guys a look at the grace-based instead of the performance-based life. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? reality is it's very easy to quickly pass over this question. But here's what David's really asking. Is there anyone left from the family of the man who tried to kill me, then pursued me from mountain to mountain so that I had to hide in caves? Is there anyone left related to this man who made my life so unbearable? Are there any family members of my arch enemy still alive? Not so that I can take vengeance, But for Jonathan's sake, because he was my friend, and because I entered a covenant with him that covers all his children as well, is there anyone left that I might be able to show kindness? What we see is that David took the first step. God created man to be in relationship with him, but man, through sin, rejected God and his plan for the world. The relationship was broken. God took the initiative to reestablish the relationship with us by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins. God made a way for people who have kept him out of their lives and ignored their relationship with him. God said, I made a covenant through my son Jesus and his death on the cross. 
That covenant drives God to search us out and to show kindness and grace to us. Like David, God took the first step. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called to him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is in the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar means a, a place of desolation or, or isolation. And Mephibosheth, the grandson of the king who had been in the wilderness, hiding out, fearing for his life in a place of isolation. He was lonely, alone, and forgotten. Maybe you've been there. Have you ever felt like the world forgotten you? Have you ever felt like there was no hope? I think there's three words that describe Mephibosheth's condition and the condition of anyone not in a relationship with God. The first word is away. Mephibosheth was away from Jerusalem, his hometown. He was away from the palace that his family once occupied. He was away from people. He was isolated and alone. Mephibosheth is a picture of a person away from God. Maybe you made up your mind that you didn't need God. Maybe other people convinced you that you could make it on your own. You didn't need God or anyone. So you steered clear and you maintained your distance from God. You isolated yourself from relationship with him. You were alone. Maybe once you had a relationship with God, but something happened. God didn't walk away from you. You walked away from him. You got busy. Maybe you decided that you were too busy for God and church. Maybe you found yourself hanging out with the wrong kinds of friends. Maybe the pull of sin was too strong. Regardless, you're away, far away from God. Second word is afraid. When you hear afraid, you might think of something like this. All week long, we've been scaring a bunch of our guests. Yesterday, Taylor Swift was here on the show. Oh. Mephibosheth's fear wasn't something to laugh at. He was deathly afraid of David. His grandfather was David's enemy. Mephibosheth believed that if he was found, he would be killed. He was not only far off, 
but he was also afraid of what would happen if he ever came near. Maybe you're afraid of God. You know that your life isn't what it should be, and and God, if he exists, is perfect. The logic goes like this. I'm a bad person. God is good. God must always be against bad. Therefore, God must be against me. So you're afraid. You're afraid to return to church. After all, what would people say? You're afraid to reestablish relationships. What if people ask where you've been? You're afraid to admit that you were wrong. Some of you have been away from God for so long that you're afraid to return to God. Some of you are even afraid of God. Will he punish you? You're afraid that God might reject you after all that you've done. And so you stay away, afraid and alone. Third word that describes a person away from God is angry. Over the years, Mephibosheth must have reached a place where he blamed David for his condition. If it hadn't been for David, Mephibosheth's father would be king. David was the source of all of Mephibosheth's problems, right? Being away and afraid fed his anger. Many people are away from God, are angry. Often that anger is redirected as blame. It's a preacher's fault, or it's the fault of the church. It's your parents' fault, or a person who claimed to be a Christian that let you down. The reason you're away from God is because of jerks who claim to represent him. And some of you take that, that anger a step further. You don't just blame other people. You blame God. You've reached the point where, where, where there is even a sense of resentment and anger towards God. You say things like, why would God allow this to happen to me? Why would a good God allow this world to be in such a mess? If he is God, why didn't he do something? If there really is a God, why do bad things happen to good people? If God really loved me, how could things in my life turn out so wrong? And you're angry. From childhood through youth, Mephibosheth could be characterized by those three words, afraid, away, and angry. One, two, or maybe even all three of those words might describe you. But in spite of your assumptions concerning God and his people, God is not against you. Watch, back to the story. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor to him. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Now, if I was David, I might have handled this a little bit differently. I might have said, your father was nice to me. When I was in trouble. And to repay his kindness, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a really nice house out in the country and maybe a few cows. Right? That would be more than enough. Wouldn't you agree? After all, Mephibosheth had nothing. And anything would be better than nothing. 
But David didn't do it that way. David wasn't stingy. David gave Mephibosheth huge amounts of land and restored Mephibosheth to a place of honor. David took a broken and handicapped person from a place of of hiding where he had nothing and brought him into the palace of a king. After David, Mephibosheth was the second richest man in the entire kingdom. David gave to Mephibosheth out of his abundance. Now listen, I know that that word abundance makes people nervous. Right? Because there have been way too many abuses by TV preachers. I, I, I've seen before where, where this guy claimed that if, he, if you sent money to him, that God would double it in 60 days. He promised abundance if I would send money to him. Why do people do that? It's ridiculous. Listen, God owns it all. God wants to bless you far beyond what some TV preacher claims in order to get your Social Security check. God wants to bless you with abundance. What will that look like? I don't know. Will your money double in 60 days? It might. It might not. It may be way beyond that. But this passage isn't necessarily just talking about money and stuff. Instead, this this passage is describing riches of God's grace. God wants to bless you with abundant grace. God doesn't base his blessings on what you've done before or what you deserve. God's grace is not performance-based. God doesn't look down this morning and see categories of people. He doesn't assess us based on our perceived worth or our past performance. God doesn't say, you are a drunk, so you're just going to get a little bit of my blessing. I know your past, and I'm not really sure I want you. He doesn't say, you, on the other hand, are pretty nice. I'm going to give you more. Listen, thank God he's not like that. Right? God gives everyone the same. Regardless of your past, God receives everyone the same. God wants to bless you with abundance. He wants to treat you like a child of the king. Now listen, there aren't stages of grace. There's no just scraping by the skin of your teeth. Whatever that means. I didn't know teeth had skin. Maybe if you don't brush them for a while. But, but there's not just barely getting by, right? You're not just barely saved. You didn't just come in under the wire. You don't get a wimpy deal while good people get great deals. God has more than enough to go around. God's forgiveness is not in short supply. His blessings are not running low. God's resources are not tied to the interest rate. They're not tied to Wall Street or the price of a gallon of gas. All the resources of heaven are available to him. God is a God of abundance. Because of his grace, not your performance, God wants to bless you. David said to Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at the table. This was not a join me for dinner tonight and then go back to Lodabar kind of invitation. Mephibosheth was invited to eat at the king's table always, continually, for the rest of his life. To which Mephibosheth responded, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog 
like me. So Mephibosheth was saying, I'm not worthy. How in the world did I qualify for this? There's no way my performance or anything I've done made me deserve this. Mephibosheth didn't earn the place at the table. Nothing that Mephibosheth could have done or could do qualified him for a lifetime at the king's table kind of offer. He was there because David remembered his promises and honored the covenant. You might have a wrong picture of church people. You imagine that they've all grown up in church. They've never done wrong and and have lived perfect, holy, wonderful, generous, and sinless lives. And as a result of that, they deserve all of God's grace. God chose them because of their wonderful performance. Now listen to me, that's not true at all. Come on, how many of you guys in here have a story? Right? I know some of you. Some of you need to get your hands up. Right? Some of you can look back to a time when you were addicted to drugs. When you were involved in sin, moving from one guilt-filled experience to another. Spending one more night of confusion, night after night, wondering where it was all going to lead. You offered nothing to God. You had nothing to give him, not one good work that genuinely revealed your worthiness to receive him. You didn't seem like a good candidate for God or for church, for salvation, or even for grace. You deserved nothing, and you could offer nothing to God. Yet in spite of all of that, in spite of all the bad things that you did, God showed love to you. That's grace. Maybe you're currently living a life away, afraid and angry. Your habits and your attitudes and your actions are sin. You know it. You know that you're away from God. Listen to me. You're a perfect candidate for grace. God demonstrates his love and forgiveness that we can't earn, we don't deserve, and we'll never be able to repay. There is something freeing about that kind of grace. God says, I love you, not because of what you've done, not because of what you can give me. I love you in spite of your faults and your failures. I know what you've done. I know what you've said. I love you anyways. My love isn't based on your performance. My love is based on my grace. Like Mephibosheth, we are unworthy. But you you don't deserve grace because of your goodness. You can't enjoy salvation and fellowship at God's table. You can enjoy God's salvation and fellowship at God's table because God made a covenant through his son, Jesus. A dead dog, worthless, in the eyes of the world, maybe, without grace, Probably, but thank God that, that with him, it's not performance-based. It's grace-based. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Do you remember when you were a child and you had to eat at the kids' table? Right? All the adults sat at one table where the food was. And you got to sit at the table in the corner, and your mom brought you a plate. Do you remember that? 
the adults, they got real plates. You got crappy plates. Now, these were really nice. These are plastic. We had paper ones. Right? The adults got fancy napkins. We got the cheap ones from the Dollar General that when you use them, it didn't do anything but just move it to the side. It didn't actually clean anything off. Right? And the adults had all the food at their table. They could eat all they want. But as kids, you were relegated to whatever your mom brought you. And what did mom say? You're going you're gonna to eat everything that you got, and you're going to like it, and you're going to smile, and you're going to have fun. Was that just my house? Right? And the adults got candles and really pretty centerpieces. Not us. We got broken crayons and dumb coloring pages. Right? And if you wanted seconds, good luck. Because they probably weren't going to hear you over all the fun they were having at the adult table. Listen, have you ever tried to cut turkey with a spork? I remember dreaming of a day when I would be allowed to eat at the adult table. Right? I didn't want to feel like a second-class citizen. I wanted to be at the big table, piling up my own plate with the food that I wanted and eating with real silverware. When David adopted Mephibosheth and brought him into the family, David didn't place him at the kid's table in the corner. He gave Mephibosheth a place at the table just like any of his other sons, a part of the family. Mephibosheth was treated exactly like any other son of the king. You see, that's what God's grace does. That's what God does for you. He adopts you into the family. Your past is forgotten. Your sins are erased. We all sit at the same table, equal in his sight. Listen, there is no kid's table with God. Paul said it like this. For as many are led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God's. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Listen, you don't have to fear God. God wants you to be a part of his family. God says to you, sit at my table. I have a place for you. There is no system of favoritism with God. He doesn't have his favorite sons and daughters and his not-so-favorite sons and daughters. He doesn't have real-born sons. He doesn't have... Adopted sons. Listen, there's not an adult table 
and a kid's table. I don't get a better spot than you do. We all have equal standing through the grace of Jesus. God loves you like a good father. He wants you to be a part of his family. You don't have to be lonely or afraid. God has a place for you. Verse 12, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Mephibosheth's disability was a constant reminder of grace. He had nothing but crutches. He couldn't work or earn a living, but he was in the palace of the king every day. Every time he limped from one place to the next, one halting step after another, he was reminded, I don't deserve this. I'm in a magnificent place enjoying the pleasures of this position because of the grace of the king and nothing else. Listen, every time that you mess up, every time you struggle with temptation, be reminded of God's grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to earn it. God loves you, and God's grace is extended to you. You only have one more thing to do, and that's to receive his grace. Now, can you imagine if Mephibosheth said to the king, No, thanks. I don't want your food. I don't want to live in the palace. I don't want your stuff or the land. I don't want a place at your table. You would look at that and say, foolish Mephibosheth, how in the world could you turn down something for nothing? How can you turn down a chance to be a child of the king? How can you refuse that? How in the world can you refuse God's offer to you? It's not performance-based. It's not anything that you have earned or, or you can earn. God isn't in heaven adding gold stars to your chart. Through Jesus, God traded the chart for adoption papers. God invites you to be a part of his family. He has a place for you at the table for you because he made a covenant through Jesus, his son. Here's my definition of grace. God knows you don't deserve salvation, and he gives it to you anyways. How could you turn that down if our worship team could come? Our ushers are coming, and we're going to take communion together as a church family. And listen, we don't have a lot of rules and requirements about communion. You don't have to be a member of this church to receive communion. You, you didn't have to give in the offering um, that we just took a moment ago. Our requirement is the same as his, that you're a follower of Christ and you're a part of God's family. He invited you to have a seat at his table. If you haven't made that decision, I'm going to pray with you um, here in a moment. When the tray comes by, I want you to, to take a cracker, take a juice. And then hold on to it, and in a moment, we're going to pray together and receive communion together.
Paul wrote about communion, he said in 1 Corinthians 11, So for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's part of the covenant made at the cross. Jesus' body was broken, and our promise is healing. Isaiah says it this way, by his stripes we are healed. So when we come to the Lord and we say, I need healing in my body, I need healing emotionally, I need healing in my relationships, we are simply restating his promise that God made that by his stripes we are healed. If you need healing today, I want to pray for you before we eat the bread. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promises. God made it the cross and still kept today. God, I pray for people that need healing. Lord, heal broken bodies in the name of Jesus. Lord, not because we deserve it, but because of your grace. But I pray you would heal broken, broken hearts and wounded emotions, not because we deserve it, but because of your, your grace. Lord, I pray that you would heal people from depression and discouragement, not because somehow they've earned it, but because of your grace. Thank you that we are invited to the table of healing. We ask your healing touch in Jesus' name and remember your promise as we eat this bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You might say, why would we want to proclaim the Lord's death? We're proclaiming his promise, and because of his death, we can have life. Maybe I described you today. You're away. Away from the Lord, away from relationship with Him. Listen, there is no better time to come to the table and say, Lord, I receive your promise. Maybe at some point you were following the Lord, but you walked away and you've been doing your own thing. Maybe you've just been too busy. Come back. There's room for you at the table. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises that you made to us, evidenced by Jesus at the cross. God, thank you that that, that promise was that we could be forgiven and free, not because we earned it. God, not because of all the good things we've done, not because we've got enough gold stars, but because you made a promise. Thank you, Lord, that you took the first step to reestablish relationship with us when you sent your son to die on the cross. We admit the things that we have done wrong. The Bible calls it sin. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for actions and attitudes and and words and behaviors that are displeasing to you. Lord, we come to you and, and invoke the promise today that because of the blood you shed and the sacrifice you made that we could be forgiven. We ask your forgiveness in Jesus' name, not because we deserve it, but because you promised it. 
thank you that you made a place for us at the table. (coughs) Thank you that there's not degrees of salvation or levels of people that have qualified for your grace, but that we are all people and we all sit at the table together as children of the King. (coughs) We celebrate your sacrifice. We remember your death and your promise as we drink this juice together. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) God, we thank you for it. Well, we thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, and we thank you that we all get to be a part and have a seat at the table. In Jesus' name, amen.